Hey, welcome. Thank you for joining us uh, for the first in a series of podcasts focused on weight management. Uh, I'm Dr. Alan Miller from Thorne, and my guest for this series is Dr. Jacqueline Jacques, who is Senior Vice President Medical Affairs at Thorne. And Dr. Jacques brings to you a wealth of weight management or weight control information based on both her being a naturopathic physician and the fact that she has been involved in the field of weight management for about 20 years. A good part of that being uh, providing specific nutrients and and aftercare for people who have undergone uh, weight loss surgery. I'm very happy to be uh, with you today, Jacqueline, and uh, I think you're gonna be able to provide some really good actionable information for people. So uh, we're gonna split this up into five parts, I guess is what we're gonna have. And uh, the first one here being diet. And we want to talk about the sorting out the myths of diet and uh, trying to you know, implement meaningful change, let's say. So first question, uh, why does everyone start diets in January anyway? Do we really all gain weight over the holidays or is it just me? <laughs> is it just you? Yes, it's just you, Alan. <laughs> Thank you, um, by the way, for the great introduction. And um you know, obviously, there's the whole issue of New Year's resolutions, and people do see the New Year's as a fresh start. But the reality is that um, we tend to celebrate holidays with food, and we tend to often celebrate holidays excessively with food. And what that can mean here in America is that starting around Halloween and definitely at least going through New Year's, I know probably in some households, maybe beyond that, uh, we are often uh, faced with a constant barrage of what I call extra foods uh, that are treats, maybe starting with those cute little chocolates that you get around Halloween and moving into eggnog and pie and all of the other celebrations that we have throughout the winter season. So, you know, do we really gain weight over the holidays? Actually, this has been studied quite a bit. And the reality is that uh, that there is uh, some general average weight gain that we see in the United States between uh, Halloween and the beginning of the new year. It's not a lot. I mean, some individuals may gain uh, more than others. The average seems to be just more like one or two pounds, but it does often mean that many of us are starting off the new year a little bit up from where we may want to be or up from maybe where we were at the end of summer. So let me let me back up just, to, uh, just for a second, semantics. Do mm-hmm. we do we want to call this weight management, weight control, weight loss? What do you what do you think? I like weight management. That's the term that I really like. Um, weight control is an interesting, you know, question. Um, but I think weight management is more a broadly accepted term. I don't like weight loss. I don't like that because it it actually it's a topic we're not discussing, <laughs> but a really big topic in the obesity community is um, weight stabilization actually being a really important discussion. And I mean, the reality is that even with all the obesity that we have in the United States, if we could freeze everybody's body weight right now at a moment in time and basically say, no one else gains any more weight, period, right? Maybe except the people who need to, okay? But they're a small subset. If we could freeze weight gain, the effect on health in America would be extremely dramatic if we could just stop weight gain. Right, yeah, and that's that's highly it's highly underappreciated that weight control or the stopping of weight gain has a very big impact on societal health mm-hmm. um, that's separate from weight loss. Yeah, so underst- we don't, understood. We don't right, because we're we're going in that direction 
and the situation seems to be getting uh, getting worse and worse. And yeah, if we could just like ho- hold it uh, in its tracks, that would be well. Eventually, right? So if you could do that, eventually that leads to weight loss, right? Because you're freezing it among people of all ages, mm-hmm. right? So if you could stop weight gain, if you could just stop weight gain, then all of the younger people have all of those years of not gaining weight. Mm, there you go. Yeah. So it's it's a, from a public health standpoint, that's actually one that gets talked a lot by, you know, like the Rudd Center for Obesity at Yale. They discuss weight control or measures to stop weight gain in society is a big topic for them when they're studying these things on kind of a population level. So makes super sense. interesting. Yeah, makes sense. <laughs> Yeah. So it's, it seems like every weight loss program or, or weight management program has its own branded diet. Uh, yes. We've seen so many of these, and some of them have gotten very popular and sold a lot of books and a lot of food. Um, some appear to be based on good science, and others uh, appear to be pretty faddish. Um, what do you consider a diet? Yeah, so, I mean, a diet is basically any set of principles by which we choose to eat, Right. So that can be anything from diets that we use for weight maintenance or weight loss, or it can be uh, diets that people adopt for, you know, maybe um, personal or ethical reasons like uh, vegan diets or spiritually based diets uh, like being kosher. So it's basically an an eating system. Um, When it comes to the weight management space, this space is populated with so many versions of what people believe to be the correct way to eat to manage body weight that I think it's it's often really overwhelming for consumers that are trying to figure out what kinds of changes they should be making. Um, if they're looking to make changes to manage their weight, it can be absolutely overwhelming. Um, and so many of these diets are populated not only with bad science, but then they conflict with each other, right? So, I mean, the, the ones that, you know, people can point to easily is say, well, you know, how does adopting a vegan plant-based diet compare to a you know, a keto diet, right? These things, we can't say that they're both equal and equally good. It's, it's really confusing. So um, when it comes to actual core science, and I, I want to be clear, there is a lot of study of a lot of diets, but there are some that have a much more data than others. Um, so I think that what I typically encourage people to do is look for where the majority of science points you, right? So if it's something that is the diet of the moment or the trend of the moment, that's probably not going to have as much science as some of the things that we've been studying in weight management for 10, 20 years. It doesn't mean that some of them don't work, right? I right. Mean, yeah. They, lose they, with they're a lot going of to. Yeah. Some of them on a subset of people are going to work. And, and, and that's what I was just, uh, just wanting to ask about is there is no one size fits all. And there may be a uh, a type of diet that works in a particular geographic region in the world, but is that because their genetics are similar, let's say, and that is the diet that they sort of grew up with. Um, and I'm thinking about other diets that work really well for other subsets of people. Um, is that um, is that a genetic? Is that a lifestyle issue? What do you think? I think it can be any of the above. I think it can be genetic issues. I think it can be lifestyle issues. I think it can be... Um, you know, that, that honestly, if you took 10 people from anywhere in the world and you gave them a set of dietary modifications, probably all of them will lose weight on those modifications initially just because they're changing their diet and they're mm-hmm. probably going to eat a stricter diet and they're going to control the amount of food they eat more strictly. So, you know, the real test of almost any of these things is can people stick with them? Can they use them long term? 
can they control weight or help manage weight um, for more than a few months at a time, right? So meaning that, that the, a, meaning that a diet is not a temporary transformation. It is something that you are going to need to adopt long term. For success, those yeah. tend to be the best plans are ones that people can stay with long term. And I think that weight weight regain and what happens for people after they've experienced a weight loss is another whole topic. But the greatest success tends to be when there's something that people can stick with. And there's a, a, an eating plan that people can adopt into their lives. So it becomes routine. It becomes part of what they do eating all the time rather than just under a special circumstance. Those tend to have the greatest greatest success for, for everything, not just for weight, but also for other health outcomes like right, cardiovascular yeah. health, right? So... Well, All one around. one diet that's been emphasized in the research, both for weight control and for some of these these other outcomes, cardiovascular and such, uh, is, is the Mediterranean diet. What exactly are the principles of the Mediterranean diet? You know, this is obviously what we've selected at Thorne. Um, this is what we, we're promoting uh, as part of our weight management program at the company. And I think that we landed ultimately on choosing the Mediterranean diet um, for a couple of really good reasons. One is that the, the science behind it is very solid. And there's not just science for weight management. There is also, I think, as you just said, science in cardiovascular health. There's very good emerging science um, uh, in brain health and healthy memory uh, with Mediterranean diet. So uh, the, the principles of this diet seem to be healthy uh, as well as being able to help uh, with uh, with weight management. So I think that, you know, the science for supporting um, this both as a, a weight management program, but also as a healthy diet is really strong and is, you know, compelling when we're looking at giving advice to a large group of people. What exactly are the principles of the Mediterranean diet? The basic principles include um, a healthy range of lean proteins from a variety of sources. So this is a diet that can be done by vegetarians or non-vegetarians. Um, and uh, it's, a, it's a whole range that can be selected from, from, uh, from red meats to fish to poultry uh, to vegetarian sources such as tofu and beans um, and that whole range. So that lean protein uh, also... Um, a good selection of low glycemic uh, fruits and vegetables, particularly with an emphasis on what I would call colorful fruits and vegetables that are supplying a high level of antioxidants. Uh, and then uh, also an inclusion of healthy fats. So those are kind of the basic principles with the Mediterranean diet. What we're actually promoting in our, uh, our weight management program is a modified Mediterranean diet. So I wanna be clear about that. And the modification that we are using is a low glycemic version of Mediterranean diet. So there's, there is more than one version of Mediterranean diets out there if people look. Um, I know that may be confusing, but the low glycemic version is probably the one that as a subset has been best studied for weight management. And the big difference between a modified Mediterranean diet and a more, if you would, conventional Mediterranean diet is actually the exclusion primarily of grains so that uh, we are taking out a lot of the uh, richer carbohydrate content from this diet, uh, as well as um, uh, the exclusion of alcohol. So it's pretty common in Mediterranean diets to include things like red wine. So that's excluded uh, from the version that we have in our weight management brochure. Uh, and also some of the starchy vegetables. It's not very many of them, but it's like corn and carrots and sweet potatoes. So basically the sweeter, higher glycemic uh, vegetables are also excluded from this plan. And for the listener who 
doesn't uh, have that information at hand about about glycemic index or low glycemic mm. foods. Sure. Main, mainly, we're talking about foods that uh, don't give an immediate spike of blood sugar after eating them, yes. right? Yes, exactly. So um, we've, we have taken the foods out of a more traditional Mediterranean diet that have the biggest impact on blood sugar, um, and in doing so, um, minimizing the effect that those might have on the hormones that help to regulate uh, body weight and appetite. One of the principles that we almost always go back to are calories, right? Mm -hmm. For the listener, just let's break it down completely here. What is a calorie? And why do calories matter? Calories are basically energy currency in the body, right? So um, we give a caloric value to not all, but virtually anything that you would consume as part of your diet um, has, has a caloric value for the most part. I'm not going to go through the ones that are exceptions to that. Uh, and you can either use those calories as energy or if they exceed the amount of energy that you're using in a day, we store them. And our form of storage currency, so uh, when you're storing money, you store that currency in your bank account as a savings. <laughs> when we store calories in the body, we store them as fat. You can put that away basically and either use it later. So uh, if you're exercising, you can draw on those caloric stores as fat and burn them up. Uh, if you're uh, reducing the amount of calories that you take in, your body will draw upon that storage currency uh, for using energy. And so that's part of how we lose weight. So uh, basically, calories are our currency for energy that can be used or can be stored. So why, how, how much do they matter? Let's, let's ask that question. How much yeah. do they matter within uh, a weight management uh, protocol? So this is, this is something that, and I know that people will disagree with me on this. It's been a very popular thing lately to tell people calories don't matter. It's the foods you eat that matter. Um, and I take a lot of issue with that. Ultimately, um, there is definitely truth in the fact that the foods that you eat matter. Um, I already said that about low glycemic foods, right? So um, those foods help to regulate our hormonal response to food. Uh, so that uh, they can help create either a more or less favorable condition for us to um, either uh, gain weight or lose weight, right? So it's definitely important. However, if you overconsume calories and you're always exceeding what you use on for energy on a regular basis, you will store them. They don't magically go away somewhere else, <laughs> right? So if you're consuming regularly in excess of what you use, you'll store, and as I already said, our form of storage is fat. We, we can't get around that. That's basic human physiology. It is what we do. So they do matter, um, and also what you eat matters. Both of those things matter. So what you were saying was uh, the, uh, the sort of the uh, fat bank account there. Um, if you are um, storing and making deposits into it all the time and you're not making any withdrawals by moving your body and uh, and burning some of that fuel then uh, it's going to end up being a sort of a uh, an increased account so does it make sense to count the calories in my meals or do we want to just look specifically at the the type of food that we're eating and and I you just answered part of that by saying it mm -hmm. you know it matters the quantity matters so uh, do we need to get that uh, specific about it and measuring the calories from each meal? 
You know, if it was really easy to do, I would tell people yes, right? I mean, if we had the really cool smartphone app where you could just take a picture of your food and it would say, that has 500 calories, you know, that would be really great, but we don't. And the, the truth is, I'm going to come back to what I said earlier about really the best diet for most people is one that they can adopt into their life and make part of their lifestyle. Most people cannot do that. There's, there's a few people who can. If they can, great, let them do it. It's wonderful. Mm -hmm. um, in the same way that most people, I read something recently that was like, it's best if you do this with a food scale. I'm like, okay, I don't even own a food scale and I'm a nutrition expert. So <laughs> I'm going to just say that it's not reasonable for most people to, to rely on counting calories and using a food scale. Um, what we do in our weight management guide that I really love is we teach some very simple techniques for eyeballing portions and that's really where most people run afoul. Um, we're not good at judging portion sizes. And automatically, if you can learn some simple rules for controlling portions, you will automatically control calories. It's the easiest thing that people can do and learn. And I honestly believe it's something that most people can learn in a few minutes and be able to adopt it very easily. But it yeah. does make sense then uh, to reduce that portion size and to learn uh, how important that is. Yeah, and I think it's, like, as I said, this is really easy for people to do. And I, we've based it largely off of looking at the size of your hand, which is something you always have with you. So, um, you know, I've seen ones that tell people, oh, this needs to be the size of a deck of cards. And if you're carrying a deck of cards with you all the time, that's great. Um, but you always have your hands, right? It's really pretty easy to learn something that um, is based off of a tool that we have and we're never separated from. So... Uh, I think this is it's a good system for people and then they don't have to be so focused on calories. They'll be really automatically reducing calories if they're able to control portions. And when, you, when you're talking about controlling portions, you're talking about controlling, say, entree portions. You're talking about salad or greens uh, or, like you said, uh, very colorful foods as well. Um, so primarily, you know, really if we had to pick and choose, our calorie-dense foods are probably going to be more our protein foods in this case and less our fruits and vegetables. Um, but we teach portion control for all of them um, because it is good. You can, again, it's hard to overdo lettuce, right? I think that's the point you're getting to is you could probably eat four plates of lettuce and you're going to get very full before you ever overconsume calories right. <laughs> doing that. Right. Um, but it is still good to have some sense of... Um, proportionality of your food, um, that also tends to lead towards a, a better uh, nutri nutrient quality of your meals and things like that as well. So um, again, as I said, these things are very, very simple for pe most people to learn. And, you know, if we had to give rules of, you know, if you're hungry and you're going to overdo in any way, sure, leafy green vegetables, overdo leafy green vegetables all day long. It's great. And do we have some resources that we can point people toward that will help people uh, understand portion control and protein foods and other types of foods? Uh, well, I think that weight management guide is a really simple guide for people. Um, I know I've referenced it a few times. Uh, it's available on the Thorn website, um, and uh, it's pretty easy to locate if you put it up in the search bar or if you're clicking on uh, – I think if you click on the weight management bundle, there's actually a link to it right there for people. It's a really simple, it's got, you know, a shopping list for foods. It's kind of got some do's and don'ts about what foods to include and not include. Um, it has some really nice visuals for explaining portion control. It's, it's all there and it's very simplified and easy to follow. 
I do like that, and and I like uh, like our detox program as well. There are a lot more uh, do's than don'ts within that um, that that protocol within that brochure. It shows you a lot yep. of things, a lot of examples of what you can do, rather than saying, "Well, don't do this and don't eat these things." You know, again, I'm going to go back and not only agree with you and say this is actually a huge advantage of the Mediterranean diet. It really does have a huge amount of food diversity. So it makes it an easy diet for people to stick with because almost everyone's going to find foods in there that they like, that they already regularly consume, that they enjoy, right? Those elements all make a diet much more sustainable. If you have foods that you like, if you have a good selection of foods so you don't get bored, right? Um, if you have good, you know, good food choices and good food diversity helps make a diet more sustainable for people over time. So it's one thing that I think is, is absolutely true is that this is a more inclusive eating plan than exclusive eating plan to agree with you. So how much weight loss is it reasonable to expect from making these dietary changes? Yeah, that's, it's a really important question. Um, this is not going to be true for everyone. There's always people who make dietary change and lose weight very rapidly. Um, there's always people on the other end of the spectrum who make dietary change and they're going to lose more slowly than average. But a good healthy target for people if they're trying to lose weight is the range of one to two pounds a week at a, on a steady basis. And I want to, you know, add to, I guess, what I'm going to say there is that if somebody's trying to lose a large amount of weight, they're trying to lose, you know, 40, 50 pounds, say, um, that can sound really slow <laughs> to people. Right. Um, yeah. However, however the, the reality is that, that that is sustainable for most people. And if they can get into a pattern of being able to sustain that, um, it has really been shown to, to help people keep weight off if they're able to kind of do that good steady loss. So, um, you know, it's, it's kind of good to keep a target in mind, but also to know that, um, you know, good healthy weight loss can take time. And I, I think that many times companies promoting more faddish weight loss have, I'm trying to think of a nice word here, have, um, skewed people's view of what's realistic for weight loss. You know, these, mm -hmm. these things that come out and say, lose 30 pounds in 30 days. That sounds really great, <laughs> except that it's not real for most people. Um, and again, if most people are doing that, if they are even able to achieve it, it's usually through some kind of very restrictive, almost like a crash diet. And the chance of them gaining that weight back the minute they stop that is extremely high. When we're looking for things that are sustainable, they tend to be more slow and steady, but also more effective. So if I uh, have a, um, a wedding that I need to fit into a tux uh, for in uh, five weeks, I'm, I'm not exactly going to lose 30 pounds before then, right? Probably not in any way that's going to be healthy or sustainable. Right. So yeah. I don't want to say that you can't achieve it. You might oh, be able yeah. to achieve it. Um, you know, we probably have people listening to this who've done things like watch The Biggest Loser, you know, shows like that. I mean, people do these things and they're able to do them. Um, they just usually can't uh, maintain what they've achieved. So maintenance is, is really the most important thing here. And, and also what you're saying, if you can do one or two pounds a week um, in a year, you could lose 100 pounds in a year. 
yes. uh, if you were able to do that and stick with it. So, and I know people who are wanting to lose some weight or manage their weight don't tend to always think of uh, of that type of a time period of all a year from now. It's like you know I want to do this and I want to see some results quickly. What what are the most important elements that make these dietary changes doable? Well, I think, so we kind of listed them before, but I'll say them again. Um, one is, uh, you know, having a diet that is going to be easy to adopt and easy to stay with. I mean, I think those are, that's really, really key, right? Um, and this has been studied. So when we look at diets, for example, that eliminate a whole food group, right? So some of the more restrictive low-carb diets, for mm -hmm. example, that cut out a huge range of fruits and vegetables allow for almost no calories that are coming from carbohydrate they're very hard for people to sustain for more than a short period of time right and so um, inevitably um, people usually will stop doing those and the minute they stop doing that what they tend to do is go back to whatever they were doing before uh, and within that uh, experience weight regain um, in fact um, there's some evidence that people may gain back more weight on average than they've lost um, if they undergo that. And there, there's a psychology that goes along with that, too. So um, I think a big part of the psychology that goes along with dietary failure, if you will, I don't really love that term, but I think it's it's one that gets used, mm -hmm. is people kind of having an all or nothing psychology about it is saying, oh, you know, I've stopped being able to do this. I've fallen off the bandwagon. I've failed at my diet. And now, you know, I know I can't be successful. I'm not going to do anything. So there's kind of a, a failure psychology that goes along with that that I think also is, is defeating for a lot of people. So really what, what makes something achievable is sustainability. So I, I think that this is a program that has all the elements of that um, because it is the kind of diet that doesn't cause a significant change in most people's lifestyle and gives enough food diversity that you can eat out at restaurants, you can eat at friends' houses, you know, you can tend to make most of the kinds of meals that you like. I think the hardest part for most people is grain restriction. Um, but I think the great thing about adopting a grain-restricted diet at this moment in history is we really are at a place in the United States where uh, there are so many options for people who've given up grains because we've we've made a big shift in acknowledging people with serious grain intolerance, things like celiac disease, right? And so it's really easy nowadays to get substitutes, if you will, for most of those foods that people have come to enjoy as grains um, from non-grain sources that easily fit into this eating plan. So I think that makes this a very... Uh, a very achievable and very doable set of dietary changes for a huge range of people. So in the long term, um, how do people stay motivated? Because um, I, I know that some people will you know, adopt some new dietary plans and be really excited about it. And they're also hand in hand with that as they're looking at the scale. Uh, and then they get to a certain point and maybe they plateau or they're not losing it as fast as they would like to. I mean, how, how do people stay motivated over the long term? Yeah, I mean, motivation is, I think, one of the, the biggest challenges that people face. Um, you know, some part of that has to be internal. So we don't have the, the magic pill or the magic words or the magic, you know, program that changes people's mindset about how they see their lifestyles. So I think that's something that part is very personal for people. Um, a big part of what I think 
breeds success um, is people working together in community. You know, so um, I really encourage particularly in families um, for families to make dietary change together um, rather than it just being something that one person is doing. So especially for something like a modified Mediterranean diet, this is something that kids can do, right? There's nothing wrong with implementing a modified Mediterranean diet for an entire family. Um, and those kinds of things tend to be positive support for uh, for maintaining good, healthy lifestyle change. Or, you know, if it's not family, um, working together with your friends or, you know, community from, you know, from your spiritual community, uh, from, you know, uh, people will form groups, say, with their with their church or, you know, joining a group of people, even if it's a group of people in social media on Facebook who are all sort of working to achieve the same set of goals. I think that really helps people um, to stay motivated, um, especially some of the things we're seeing with, with social media now, I think, are are notable and remarkable where people form, you know, groups to achieve some of these changes and they share, uh, you know, recipes and they share motivation. And those things, I think, are um, equally as valid as uh, working with, you know, your community where you where you are physically or where you live. And probably the optimal situation there is if you can get your family to buy in uh, as well so that you're not uh, trying to make different meals for different people within the family. Exactly. That's uh, That makes it much more difficult. And really, uh, with any kind of a lifestyle change, whether you're adopting uh, new eating patterns or, you know, you're trying to quit smoking, um, if you have yep. have other people doing other things in the household, it can be sort of sabotaging to you. Exactly. And when we were talking about the Mediterranean diet, you were talking about good fats, uh, and we sort of went past that. And I, I want to go back to that really quickly to uh, give people a little more information about what is a good fat. I mean, we're we're sort of trained to, when we're talking about weight management, is fats are bad. Don't eat a bunch of fat. Yeah, so that's really, it's a great question. So, um, you know, fats, uh, on the one hand, are our most calorie-dense foods. So um, they have a little more than twice as many calories uh, as a, a protein or a carbohydrate. So um, we, you know, if we're talking back on those calorie principles, we can't quite as afford as many fats in that currency model as we can of other foods because it takes less fat to start getting into that storage space uh, with calories. But at the same time, fats are really important for health. Um, we have a set of fats that are uh, not only good for us, but a, a set that are essential. We actually need them. We need them for making our hormones. We need them for healthy regulation of inflammation in the body. We need them for health of our brain and our nervous system and uh, and for cardiovascular health. So uh, we need to make sure that we're including enough of those healthy fats uh, just for our nutritional purposes. Um, the other part of this is honestly uh, appetite control. So um, some of that being hormonal, but um, that actually is a stronger trigger for satiety. It's a stronger trigger for feeling full than almost anything else in the diet, right? So um, having a certain amount of fat, especially coming from those good sources, is part of what triggers us to know that we're full. So we want that. Um, it's also... Uh, this, the saying among friends of mine uh, who are uh, who are in the space of, of uh, nutrition and weight loss and uh, maybe some of those who are passionate about cooking is is that fat is that which makes food taste good. <laughs> so fat also gives a greater level of what we call hedonic satisfaction from food. So our food actually tastes better with a little bit of fat, which tends to make meals 
more satisfying, even mm -hmm. sort of psychologically more satisfying. So making sure that we get adequate amounts of those healthy fats um, from sources like olive oil or uh, coconut oil, um, sesame oil. So those good healthy sources of fats, even the ones that are naturally contained in, in foods like fatty fish, for example, like salmon, um, really important for all of those areas. Well, thank you, Jacqueline. Uh, that has been uh, a great deal of information packed into a short period of time. Um, appreciate it. And we'll uh, be talking soon again in the part two of the podcast on exercise and what is the role of exercise in weight loss and weight management. 